0: America's number 1 show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved show.
1: And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, a great nation that has uh, some great allies. And we do. And uh, one of the one of the big lessons of this uh, entire horror in Ukraine is that we are blessed with uh, a almost united front in nato and nations that really do care about what happens in ukraine and by an unexpectedly strong performance by the ukrainian forces in resisting this russian invasion no one saw that coming well almost no one Uh, michael weiss uh, an american journalist and author wrote in February, before the invasion of Russia was even fully underway, he wrote in Time magazine, even if Russia wins, it won't do so easily. How did he know that? Uh, We'll be speaking with Michael Weiss, who is contributing editor at the Daily Beast, uh, director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, And uh, he is also the co-author of ISIS inside the Army of Terror. He just returned from Ukraine and uh, has been eyewitness to some of the disasters encountered by the Russian military. Uh, Michael, first off, what had given you the indication uh, ahead of so many other observers in the press that this was not going to be any kind of cakewalk for vladimir putin and for the russian forces
2: well first of all thanks for having me on the program um i went to ukraine in january when there was a not not even a trickle but a deluge of reporting most of its source to western intelligence suggesting that indeed russia was preparing for a massive invasion which which later took place but I went to Ukraine with a, 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 a very um, explicit purpose, which is to, to find out why the Ukrainians were not panicking. Uh, they were famously uh, and, and rather shockingly to Western uh, eyes and ears calm. Uh, they were laughing off these sort of uh, doomsday predictions about Kyiv falling or being sacked within 72 hours and so on. And, you know, I tried to pre- present a, a fairly nuanced portrait of why that was, and, and my takeaway, at least in hindsight, is that the Ukrainians were wrong for the right reason. and by that I mean they didn't see this invasion happening because they didn't think Putin would be so stupid and foolhardy as to try it, uh, a line that stuck with me, which, which came from a, a deputy of the RADA, Ukraine's parliament, uh, and before that, um, rather tellingly, um, she was the uh, in charge of European integration under the Poroshenko administration was that uh, putin will choke on ukraine and you know look i was doing you know i was trying to get a sense from the military security and political establishments why they were so confident that they could fend off an invasion and the answer was you know this is a country that has been at war an active state of war with russia for eight years over four hundred thousand people have seen combat against conventional russian forces not just quote unquote separatists, but, you know, Russian soldiers who'd been brought in with no insignias under the, the veil of plausible deniability in Donbass. So you're looking at about one, maybe two percent of the population that has fought this army and knows it well. And, you know, even though they, the, the West was slow to arm Ukraine and certainly didn't deliver the kind of kit that they're receiving now, uh, there was a very very good intelligence sharing mechanism. I mean indeed, and we saw the The reporting that was coming out about the imminence or the likelihood of the invasion and as we now know through some very good reporting by nbc news um one of the ways ukraine managed to hold keith and protect the government was um the u.s was essentially telling them what the russians were doing and where they were about to strike and that gave them um kind of eyes behind the back of their head and and also a a forecasting ability or capability that they otherwise wouldn't have had but i think there was a big problem in the way that the media was covering this. Uh, it's not that they got the, the the fact of the war itself wrong, but there was a lot of um, doom casting. And I think much of it was rooted in this perception of Ukrainian naivete. You know, oh, this adorable little Eastern European nation, you know, it's not worried that the sky is falling when it is. You know, they're going to be slaughtered. They're, it's going to be a swift and easy route. Putin commands the second most... Powerful army in the world. He's got nuclear weapons. His, his military reforms have been inaugurated years ago. And Defense Secretary, Sir Minister Shoigu, has built this bright, shiny new army for him. And, I mean, we've seen how th- this I mean, this is all just Potemkin theater. I mean, it, so many myths have been debunked in the last two months and change. It, it's going to take, I think. Uh, Future historians are going to have their work cut out for them trying to figure out how this all happened. But, um, you know, I think at, at, at bare minimum, all I did was, was try to convey what the Ukrainians themselves were telling me. And look, I, I didn't predict anything. I mean, I, I was deeply, deeply conflicted. Um, dark nights of the soul, a lot of crippling self-doubt that maybe I was being gaslit by the Ukrainians and being had by their propaganda. Um but it turned out no. I mean they, they were they had a better sense of, of how this thing would play out than, than I think most Americans did.
1: In terms of how this thing plays out, at at uh at this point, uh, let's first talk about what people still tend to believe is the most likely outcome, which is that uh this ends up being a long grinding, brutal, horribly bloody war. Perhaps even involving the use of tactical nuclear weapons. How does how does this thing uh, end up in a Russian victory, which uh, Putin seems to indicate, and many of his uh, spokespeople seem to indicate they are absolutely committed to achieving.
2: They well, I, his spokespeople uh, certainly want to give the impression. But that is so. And I think Putin for sure believes that, that he can win. Um, this is a man who has uh, lived in a sort of siege mentality in um, both physical and, I believe, intellectual isolation for a long time. He was sold a bill of goods, or so he believes, by some of his spy masters, one of whom is now sitting in um, Lefortovo prison um, under a false identity. Uh, he was the, the director of the fifth service of the FSB in charge of the Ukraine file. He's now been purged, others have been purged in the military, uh, up to the rank of general, purportedly. Um, I'm sure there have been more cases of this cannibalization of the regime internally than than has come to light. But um, look, I see very few avenues for a Russian strategic victory here. And that victory has been defined down. It it went from regime change to we're simply looking to secure the Donbass and create a land corridor connecting Russian Federation territory to Crimea. They already have a bridge that could connect the the peninsula to Russia, but now they want a sort of direct line of communication through Ukrainian territory. Um, That's going to be a a heavy lift for them. Uh, And and by that I mean, according to the British government, uh, one-fourth of the battalion tactical groups that uh, Russia committed to this war have been rendered combat ineffective. So I I think, if I recall correctly, it was something like 180 BTGs, so a fourth of them are basically taken off the battlefield. We still don't have full clarity on Russian fatalities, but I believe, and I think there's good reason to believe, that you're looking, if not just killed in action, but total casualties, those who have been injured, uh, who have deserted, in some cases even defected to the Ukrainian side and killed, you're looking at upwards of 25 to 30 or 40,000 Uh, And that's that's even NATO officials are beginning to talk in those numbers. Um, Simply pouring more manpower into Ukraine is not going to help the Russians. Um, I'm seeing every day instances of colossal stupidity at the tactical level, instances that their supply lines. Okay, when
1: when you're talking about colossal stupidity, if we can, let's get back to that and then talk about what uh, still seems unthinkable to many people but how does ukraine win this war and if that is even possible i know michael weiss you believe that it is uh we will get to more of that with michael weiss uh of the daily beast and Michael Weiss, who just returned uh, from Ukraine and saw firsthand some of the Russian military disasters, writes for the uh, Daily Beast and uh, New Lines magazine and elsewhere. He's one of the most perceptive, knowledgeable reporters of the current state of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Michael, let me ask you a couple of questions that are very very pressing and very very immediate right now we began the show today by looking at some of these reports of of Vladimir Putin being very ill and perhaps Mm -hmm. having cancer surgery coming up Uh, other reports from the Daily Mail in Britain suggesting he may be suffering from Parkinson's and dementia and uh, uh, first question, Is that sound any of that credible to you? Second question, if that is the case, if he is going to be forced for a period of time to turn over running the Russian autocracy to somebody else, apparently this uh, f- police official named Petrashev, who uh, he has been working with, uh, is that – Good news or bad news in terms of uh, ending this war?
2: Uh, no, Patrushev is—he um, is one of the most hawkish men in the Russian government. Um, I would say you, you might have made a case that there was an auction for who was second in line a few months ago, Patrushev or D- Defense Minister Shoigu. But I think given the performance of the military, Shoigu's um, currency is is trading at an all-time low. Uh, Patrushev was FSB director for, I believe, eight years. He succeeded Putin in that role. Um, he has been responsible for, essentially, Russia's security. He, he, I believe he's now the secretary of the uh, National Security Council. And if you look at some of the comments he's made most recently, I mean, this is a guy who has a messianic mission against the West. Um, and against NATO, and the United States in particular, going back to a very um, Andropov-style KGV mentality. Uh, so no, that's not good news for Ukraine um, or Russia, for that matter. As regards Putin's health, I mean, I, I'm not about to scoop myself on the radio, but I am working on a story that is related up to that, um, which should come out either this week or early next. Um, I think there is there there to that story Um, although I think some of the details remain to be clarified Um, but look I mean there's a fundamental crisis taking place inside Russia Um, this is a country that went from being an authoritarian state to a totalitarian one in the space of almost about 72 hours um, maybe a week if you're generous Uh, internal dissent criticism is now not tolerated at all Everybody in a position to leave the country who saw the writing on the wall has done so or attempted to do so. Uh, one of my colleagues at the Free Russia Foundation, uh, Vladimir Karamazov, is now in prison looking at 15 years for the crime of giving an interview to a Western journalist in which he denounced the war and said that you know, things were not going so well for the Russian military. That was classed as disinformation by the Russian government. I mean, you know, we're returning to a very dark period for Russia. Uh, how, how does how does
1: done. how how is it possible to envision what's the most optimistic view one can take about uh, Ukraine's ultimate success in winning this war?
2: Well, I mean, if things proceed as they have done, and keep in mind, the Ukrainians are getting military equipment that they've been begging for for years. Um, long-range artillery, multiple launch rocket systems. Um, they are getting now NATO-standard ammunition for their howitzers. That's a big deal because the, the stuff they've been using is Soviet-era 152-millimeter uh, shells, which are in short supply in Europe. In fact, Russian military intelligence, the GRE, which I'm writing a book about at the moment, went around blowing up ammunition depots and weapons manufacturing plants in Bulgaria and the Czech Republic. They also Novichok, a Bulgarian arms dealer, to prevent Europe from and NATO from supplying Ukraine with 152-millimeter shells, But now that they're getting NATO-standard howitzers, they have unlimited ammunition. So they can now press the fight. They can take the fight to Russia in Donbass. And today I've seen indications, and I think this has been verified by the Pentagon, that the Ukrainians have pushed the Russians north, back to the border, by about 40 miles in Kharkiv. Kharkiv is a city, um, historically very pro-Russian city, Russian-speaking city, that the Ukrainians have been trying to take since day one and have failed so far. So the real question is, you know, uh, who has the staying power? Uh, I, I saw it suggested early on in this campaign that, you know, the, the clock is not on Ukraine's side, it's on Russia as well. I think I disagree with that assessment now. Um, what remains to be seen is what Putin will do on May 9th, um, which is Victory Day in Russia, celebrating the defeat of Nazi Germany in World War II, will he um use it as an opportunity to declare whatever pyrrhic victory he wants to 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 declare or will he use it as a call for mass mobilization in other words um there's going to be a draft and we're going to they're going to send tens of thousands of more russian conscripts into ukraine but even that's not going to really be a game changer here i mean i talked to military analysts many of whom were quite bullish on on russia's um rooted success who now kind of are very pessimistic in their appraisal of what Russia can achieve, even with all the firepower and manpower in the world, which it simply hasn't got. I mean, one of the things that's, that's taken place now, I spoke to the Deputy Defense Minister of Ukraine last week, and he said everything we've shot out of the sky, whether it's cruise missiles, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, fixed-wing or rotary-wing aircraft, when we open it up, the electronic guts of these uh, devices or munitions, they're made in one of two places the united states or the european union and with sanctions now taking a bite out of the russian economy and the russian military industrial complex the Russians simply can't build precision guided munitions so you know their army has historically been uh, uh, an artillery-based army so they're basically just pounding everything in sight but that's that's not a way you can really win a war You, you can drive the defenders back a bit but you can't hold and seize territory without infantry and, they, and their infantry, I mean, without putting too fine a point to it, sucks. You know, I'm seeing uh, evidence on, on social media of Russian military vehicles with tires that were manufactured by the Soviet Union. So can you imagine sending guys into battle to take a country or to take swaths of territory in a country with 31-year-old tires? I mean, none of this, none of this you know, any, any military expert or general or colonel major will tell you They would never go to war in in such a a dire set
1: of conditions like this. Uh, This is uh, all extraordinary, and it's very, very important. Uh, We're going to post some of your most recent dispatches uh, from Ukraine, Michael, and I hope you will join us again, and I hope we have more encouraging news. And look, it's not encouraging to see human suffering. But uh, it certainly is encouraging if you see that that suffering is for a purpose, a higher purpose, which is um, democracy and independence and sanity. Uh, The uh, real goal of Russia, the state news agency, said what Russia must do to Ukraine. We'll share that with you coming right up on The Michael Medved Show and i know that speaking with michael weiss as we just did for a couple of segments is enormously encouraging and he's somebody with real insight and who has seen close up and personal exactly what the front of war looks like in Ukraine but it's also important when you're talking about that not to get too encouraged by the current battlefield situation because the the nightmare that is Russia is so profound and so incredibly dangerous I I saw this and you you need to hear it very carefully because it, it really does show what this war is about and why it is so essential to the welfare and the well-being of the United States of America and of civilization in general, that not only that that Ukraine prevail and defend its national sovereignty, but that Russia lose and lose decisively. The uh, RIA a state news agency this is the official Russian government position on April 3rd just a month ago published a um, a piece under the title what Russia must do to Ukraine now this is after the war uh, obviously had been going on for a week and here's what they said what mu- Russia must do to Ukraine said ordinary Ukrainians must be made to atone for the guilt of their hostility to Moscow. The name Ukraine must be abolished once again and forever and the country must be split into several pieces. Ukrainian elites should be physically liquidated, that means killed, and the remaining population re-educated, and de-Ukrainized. What you're talking about is the kind of nightmare when you talk about re-education people after the communists took over Vietnam and South Vietnam. They put a million and a half people in re-education camps. That's what they're talking about in Ukraine, a, a country which used to have a population of 44 million. And of course, millions of those refugees want very much to come back if their country is safe. The uh, former president of Russia, who is a current deputy national security chief, Dmitry Medvedev, remember he took over as president when Putin was term limited, Putin then was prime minister, and, Uh, And then, of course, Putin came back as president. In any event, Dmitry Medvedev outlined a similar vision for the future of Ukraine, also in the first part of April. He wrote that after the Russian victory, quote, the Ukrainian state will disappear, just like the Nazi Third Reich. As for the Ukrainians' deep sense of their own separate nationhood, Mr. Medvedev explained, quote, it's a great fake fed by anti-Russian venom and an all-encompassing lie about their own identity. Ukraine never existed in history, and it doesn't exist today. This is uh, what, what folks are dealing with. And yes, it is nightmarish. And, uh, and, and by the way, speaking of nightmarish, uh, there is, I think, a little bit of premature celebration, to say the least, about the um, Elon Musk takeover of Twitter. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has called for uh, Elon Musk to assemble a roundtable of the most brilliant people in the world and uh, to use those. Bri- uh, now, the question is, she obviously has in mind that she will be part of this roundtable of the most brilliant people in the world, but I'm not sure that works out for her. Uh, th- there is also uh, this about uh, that it takes a less optimistic view of the Elon Musk takeover of I uh, almost said of Ukraine. No, he's not taking over Ukraine, though it would be undoubtedly greatly beneficial, better for him to take over than uh, for <laughs> for Russia. The uh, MSNBC host named Mehdi Hassan – this is clip 21, Jeremy uh, – took a look at uh, what is happening with the uh, – twitter takeover as he perceives it by elon musk uh listen i mean it's
0: easy in american discourse to talk simplistically about the far left and the far right as two equally dangerous fringe blocks elon musk has done it plenty of times just in the past week but here's the difference america's far left wants to give us free health care and free child care america's far right wants to give us white supremacy and no democracy And this asymmetrical polarization of US politics would be laughable if it weren't so horrifying. We are living through an unspeakably dangerous moment. The pro-QAnon, pro-neo-Nazi faction of the Republican Party is poised to expand dramatically come the midterms. We're just two years away from Donald Trump, very possibly reseizing executive power. If that happens, we may look back on this past week as a pivotal moment when a petulant and not so bright billionaire casually bought one of the world's most influential messaging machines and just handed it to the far right.
1: Okay, Uh, first of all, uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not so on target with her idea of assembling uh, an assemblage of the world's most brilliant minds to run Twitter, Twitter not always noted, even at uh, its best for a high-level meeting of the minds. But uh, here, he describes the billionaire, Elon Musk, as not so bright. I, he's obviously extremely bright and uh, very capable. And this notion of a far-right conspiracy that where Twitter is going to be handed by Elon Musk to neo-Nazi, I mean, isn't this a little bit alarmist and ridiculous? And by the way, it's put in perspective very well because part of it is the idea that Elon Musk is a bad guy because he's a billionaire. Look, you don't have to drive a Tesla to recognize that Elon Musk has done a lot of good for the world. He certainly has um, promoted and expedited the arrival of more fuel-efficient Vehicles, vehicles that uh, actually run on electric power. He's able to change lives for the better. And by the way, that's true of many billionaires. There, there was a piece uh, where the Wall Street Journal invited uh, college students, and they do this from time to time in uh, some, you know, they have a Young Future View uh, segment of the newspaper. And they uh, asked, uh, young people this, is uh, this, um, do billionaires heirs have too much money, which is a fairly fundamental question. And they got answers that are very pithy and very informative from a number of fairly brilliant young people, people who attend Columbia University and computer science, who attend Colgate University, Hamilton College and elsewhere. I want to share some of those responses with you and uh, we also are going to be looking at a uh, big new movie with uh, Liam Neeson Plus, uh, dealing with a couple of uh, emails that have come in uh, challenging the things that I've said or implied on the show. Uh, we will get to that and more, all coming up, one 800 on the MedVet Show.
0: The greatest show on God's green earth. Oh, good!
1: And on The Michael Medved Show, uh, one of the things that happens with the future of you segment of The Wall Street Journal is, which comes out every once in a while, and uh, they ask young people to give answers to provocative and very controversial questions. This week they were asking, do billionaires have too much money? And uh, the answers are terrific, and I want to share some of them with you because I think it's helpful and certainly should give people an encouraging view of the younger generation. This is all from current college students. The proper question to ask is not whether America's overall disparity of wealth is increasing, but whether the standard of living is improving across the board. That's what Jeffrey Wahlberg asks of Columbia University, a student there. And the answer to that is yes. Standard of living is improving across the board. Widespread advances in technology have helped improve the overall quality of life across the nation. Phones, computers, e-commerce are such examples. Behind such influential technology stand billionaires who played instrumental roles in its development. We should consider their wealth as a small percentage of the overall value that they helped create with most of the gains being captured by consumers. A cursory glance at the group of ultra-wealthy Americans uh, reveals that much of their money was earned meritoriously through a combination of skill, hard work, and drive. In 2021, reports showed that over 70% of the rich 400 richest men in the U.S. and 88% of millionaires are self-made. They didn't inherit their money, They earned it. We should see those vast fortunes as the pinnacle of the American dream, not as phenomena to ridicule. Absolutely right on the money. Then this from Nathan Biller at Colgate University. He's a history major. He says, Successful business moguls like Elon Musk are the fruit of U.S. culture, not symptoms of its rot. The ability to build and succeed is an inseparable part of uh, one of the of the American dream which has drawn people to this nation for generations and created one of the most competitive and inventive societies on earth the billionaire technocrat and the mom-and-pop shop down the street are both created by this ideal while the degree to which Americans are able to realize this dream varies widely society needs to be careful not to confuse wealth equality with baseline living standards the economy is not zero sum and the commerce made by innovation creates value across socioeconomic ranks and then this uh which i think is uh extremely important and a brilliant recognition from nicholas Heiser at stanford university He writes, people have every right to scoff at the extreme wealth disparities that exist in America today. It doesn't make sense for money to be hoarded by a few people while everyone else has to spend their lives making do. The general populace, however, doesn't understand the limits of Elon Musk's wealth. He may well be worth hundreds of billions, but that wealth doesn't exist in a bank account. Much is speculative based on the companies he operates. As of 2021, Tesla was valued higher than such automakers as Toyota or General Motors, despite its lack of legacy and meager market share. It's easy to imagine that this valuation could decrease, which would drastically decrease Mr. Musk's wealth. The average person would be outraged to see his wealth diminish from factors outside his control. Mr. Musk is playing a game of speculation. He sometimes makes promises his companies don't keep, and the market eventually corrects rogue speculation. Mr. Musk happens to thrive with speculative wealth, while others prefer a bank account's stability. Uh, All of this, uh, it seems to me, extremely encouraging. And uh, going directly to the question about do billionaires have too much money, Uh, Email came in from Tim in Auburn, Washington. He says, I can't believe you tried to imply that Ron Paul is a Russian tool. You have to be blind not to think that NATO-USA buddying up to Ukraine would not go unpunished, not to call out the current administration for letting the Ukraine citizens be used as cannon fodder is crazy or lazy by you. They could end this at any time just to say Putin is crazy and that is the end of it. Come on, Michael. How could the current administration end this at any time? By, by what? By doing what? By saying, no, we're not going to support the Ukrainians in defense of their, uh, their own national sovereignty, the existence of their nation, to prevent them from being wiped out as an identity, which uh, Russia has very specifically said they want to do. And as far as Ron Paul and his Russian connections, just look at the financing, which is quite public for the Ron Paul Institute of Peace. And this is not Rand Paul. The senator is different. But the old man who ran for president three times And I think, his biggest campaign, he got 3% of the final vote, not even. But uh, this idea that the... um, that justifying Russia and blaming America and NATO, which is a defensive alliance, has never been anything other than a defensive alliance, to blame that for this utterly pointless and cruel and evil war? Outrageous. And speaking of utterly cruel and evil, Nancy in Portland writes in, your hatred for the homeless says a lot about your overall view of humanity. Isn't our motto, give us your poor? Part of that means we welcome the world's less fortunate into our nation and then help them, not shun them, like you do on a daily basis. Would you rather change our nation's slogan to give us your best and brightest, leave the least to rot away? I pray that your heart and mind is changed and that you try to be better. Uh, First of all, very few of the people who are homeless on the streets are immigrants. And and it's true, I mean, it's below the the immigrant population, the population of people who have been born elsewhere in the United States is somewhere between 15 and 20%. It's, it's fairly big. But uh, in terms of the homeless population, it, it is not people who are poor and trying to get better and giving them just goodies for sleeping on the street, for refusing medication, for refusing to progress is not kindness, it's cruelty, because it harms any chance that they would have of bettering one situation. Simply uh, saying that, oh, well, this is people are suffering, therefore they sleep in public, and that's fine, is a foolish and not a helpful means of looking at them, Nancy. More to come uh, as we proceed. Meanwhile, proceeding to a big new movie, one of the biggest movies released uh, just over the weekend, a film starring Liam Neeson as a compassionate hitman with dementia. No, it has nothing to do with Vladimir Putin. Uh, The film's called Memory. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Liam Neeson plays an expert assassin who is suffering from memory loss, a gigantic problem in his ruthless line of work in Memory. Now playing in theaters. I'm the bad man. I have been for a long time. He's interfering with an international investigation. Which side of this do you really want to be on? I want justice. Well, will stop at nothing to bring justice to a drugs and trafficking cartel at the Mexican border, a corrupt police department, and various other challenges posed by co-stars including Guy Pearce and Monica Bellucci. Memory deploys an interesting premise, with the main character having to write reminders on his forearm about who exactly he's supposed to kill next. But the grim, brutal plot, based on a Belgian film and book known as The Alzheimer Affair, emphasizes appalling brutality above any form. of emotional engagement rated R of course two and a half stars for memory and on the uh, Michael Medved show uh, next time a question how did conspiracy theories uh, go away from the fringe where they've always flourished and come into the mainstream we live in an age of misinformation how did that happen and uh, Uh, What does it have to do with Sandy Hook? We will get to that. We will also talk with New York Times economist Peter Coy, who says that if you want to tackle student debt, you have to fix ineffective colleges that graduate people who can't repay their loans and because they haven't learned anything useful at all in school. And then the LA Times asks an important question, is politics making people sick? Not just an emotional reaction, but actually physically ill. And then the attack of the killer wild turkeys. There are several federal agencies trying to deal with this problem for this greatest nation on God's green earth.